Welcome to the Cowie Baptist Church podcast. To learn more about Cowie, including in our gathering times, visit us online at cowie.church. Enjoy the message. Together and so grateful uh, just for each of you being with us today. For those of you that are uh, gathering with us in our online campus, we're super grateful uh, just for the blessing of technology and being able to, to knit together uh, around his word uh, today. We are uh, walking through First Peter chapter number three, and uh, today going to be walking through what I believe is maybe one of the more difficult passages in uh, the New Testament. For those of you that are uh, a guest with us this morning, and uh, we primarily and most always just preach verse by verse through the scriptures, we uh, we feel that uh, just digging in and just seeking the full counsel of God's word uh, is is just how God would have us walk through that. And so we're going to be jumping in uh, again in 1 Peter 3. We're going to begin in verse 15, which is really where uh, this whole thought of prepare uh, comes from and this whole uh, just picture of us being ready and us being prepared to give a reason for the hope that is uh, within us. And we see this verse, as I've shared in weeks before, we see it sandwiched in the midst of suffering. And so we're going to really dig into that verse in its context today. And we're going to look uh, at just the glory of God in the midst of suffering in the life of a believer. We're going to see as we walk through the rest of First Peter, we're going to see it's kind of the Job uh, of the New Testament. And we're going to see uh, just God's work in the midst of those things. So we're going to jump in uh, this morning. I want to share just a little story from history. There was a battle uh, of Waterloo, which was one of the most famous battles in history. And it occurred uh, on the mainland of Europe. I believe it was in 1815. And it pitted the French army commanded by Napoleon against these uh, Anglo-German Dutch forces that were uh, led by the Duke of Wellington and uh, the Prussian forces commanded by General Gebhard Blücher. And there's this interesting story about how the news of this battle and the victory in this battle, how it reached England. News was carried first by this ship that uh, sailed from Europe and it went across the English Channel to uh, to the England southern coast, and then it was relayed by these signal flags on to London. And when the report was received in London, right, there was rejoicing there. And when the report was received at this Winchester Cathedral, the flags atop the cathedral spelled out Wellington's defeat of Napoleon. And, and it was the, the hope that they would declare this to the whole city. But the fog began to roll in, and there were only two words that showed up. And you'll see those words on your screen. And the rest of the message was hidden. There was this incomplete information. There was this uh, picture. And because of that, the citizens of London, they thought Napoleon had won. And it was this devastating defeat. It was this picture of, of gloom and bad news. And the implications of it were so significant that the bad news, and you know how bad news spreads, right? It spread everywhere. But when the fog began to lift and when uh, the fog was gone, the flags that were high up on the Winchester Cathedral completed the news and the flags spelled out this triumphant message that Wellington had defeated the enemy. The English fears were unfounded. Joy overtook these moments and there was rejoicing and great victory that was celebrated because of one of the most dangerous enemies this nation had ever faced had been defeated. 
And I want to enter into this passage today with this overwhelming, overarching truth of the victory of Jesus Christ, the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Uh, We're going to see in the midst of this passage and maybe an overarching statement that you see on the screen that's really going to sum up a very difficult passage of Scripture, that the resurrection and ascension of Christ gives suffering saints certain hope that victory is secured and Christ is supreme. Can I remind you this morning, we are not home yet. And the uh, original recipients of this letter were referred to as these exiles, right, that were in a foreign land. Scripture says that we are ambassadors of Christ, right, that we're not home yet. And we see in this passage that in the midst of this time that we are in, we walk through suffering. This is not new news to anyone in the room. This is not unusual news. We all go through suffering. And in the midst of suffering, we can become weary. We can be distracted and so honed in on the moments that we are in that we forget that we are fighting from victory. We forget that the battle is already one. And when we pick up in 1 Peter chapter number 3, beginning in verse 15, we read these words. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so there's this picture that we set apart Christ as holy, that we sanctify Christ as holy and that he is separate that we recognize that there is by the way nobody like him right there is nobody like our God that there is nothing that our God can't do and we come in to these moments with that truth that that undergirds uh, the moments that we're in and we say that there is nothing that our God can't do that there is nobody like our God and we trust that that the king of kings and lord of lords is high upon his throne and he is sovereign over all things that there is nothing that that he is not uh, sovereign over that he is in control and it's not the opposition that all angels and all authorities and all uh, rulers if we get down to verse 22 which I hope to land in today uh, are subject to him but yet here we are in the midst of a world that is filled with suffering and Peter wanted these people God wanted These people, God wants us to know that in the midst of these moments, that we can look and we can see the final outcome. And the final outcome is victory. You know, there's people that would tell you, hey, you know what? There's, I like to call them the joy boys, right? They'll tell you that that in this life, if you're following Jesus, that you're never going to face anything difficult. That you're never going to walk through difficult times. And all those things may tickle our ears and sound very good. But Jesus said, he wanted us to understand something, that in this world, we're going to face trouble. We're going to go through hard times. In this world, you will have tribulation. And Jesus said the same message that I believe uh, that that God was wanting us to, to receive from Peter, that in the midst of a world filled with trouble that we can take courage because he has overcome this world. I'm so grateful to know that and that we too as followers of Jesus Christ will have victory. And so in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hard times, in the midst of these things that are going on and if you go back further before verse 15 you'll see that this was sandwiched in the midst of suffering and he's saying in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficult times, in times where when you stand for Jesus and you're rejected by this world and we'll talk about that a little bit uh, at the end but when we stand in that way he says we are always to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us and so as we walk through this in the midst of suffering the first thing I want you to remember is that is to have hope 
So in the midst of hard times, in the midst of suffering, have hope. You know, every morning I drop off my kids to uh, MBI and then the high school. And some days my daughter is with me and some days she is not based on their school schedule. And every morning... Every morning, Craig Kermay, who probably may even be watching online in these mornings, moments, he'll look, and if Grant's in the front seat and Hope is not, what does he say? You've lost hope. There you go. It was a pop quiz. You did good. And then the next day, when she's with me, he'll, I'll pull through, and he'll look at me, and he'll say, you got hope. Yeah, and he's really excited about it. And we should be in that kind of thing. But the reality is that believers walking through the midst of this broken world, when we face difficult times, we can lose hope. And Peter says, we're always to be ready to give a reason for the hope. So we have hope and we are to share that hope. And we want to share that hope, not in a way that's arrogant and in a way that's being a jerk, right? With gentleness and respect, with gentleness and goodness. We have this picture, so we have hope. We share the reason for that hope. Look at verse 16. He says, And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So he says that we're to share our hope and we're also to be faithful, right? We're to, we're to share our faith and we're to be faithful. We're to live our lives in a way that what happens with our lives is matched by our lips, and what happens from our lips is matched from our life. So he says that we're to have this good conscience, and a good conscience is formed by the Word of God, right? That as we take in the Word of God, as we uh, saturate ourselves with the Word of God, Scripture says that, that, I love the psalmist when he said, Your Word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. He says, How does a young man keep his way pure, right? By taking heed according to your Word. And he says, I've hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? And we, we ought to go out every day with God's Word hidden in our heart with a secret weapon, right? A concealed weapon, the Word of God that'll help us stand against the wiles of the devil against the mess of this world. And he says, listen, we, we want to have this good conscience. And in this good conscience, a good conscience is demonstrated by good behavior. That's what he says in, in verse 16. He says, you, you keep a good conscience. And he says, then those things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Look at verse 17. He says, for it is better. So he says, if you're going to suffer, he says, it's better to suffer for doing good for doing the right thing. He says, for it is better if God should will it. I find that an interesting piece of that verse. He said, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. Now, that word suffer is pasco. It's a word that gives us this picture. There's, there's several words in the New Testament, maybe six or seven words in the New Testament that are used for suffer, But this word specifically gives this picture of suffering that's happening from the outside. That's happening uh, from the outside and not from the inside. And so there's this picture as we live for Christ, as we pursue holiness. And, and, and there's this call that as we live in that way, that we witness for Jesus, we stand for Jesus, we share our faith, even if we face persecution for it. And he says, if you fa face persecution... Uh, as a result of those things, he said it's much better to face it for that than for doing the wrong thing. And then he says, if God should will it so. And so there's this truth that's in the midst of it. We sung these truths this morning, right? We said that there's uh, nothing that our God can't do. Do you believe that? This one is that there's nothing that God can't do. 
we believe that, right? And we believe there's nobody like our God. And when we read the first two chapters of the book of Job, we could say, aren't we, that there is nothing that Satan can do to God's children without his permission. We wouldn't necessarily have that clear picture if it wasn't for the book of Job. I, I, think, of, I think of what Jesus told Peter. Do you remember when Jesus looked at Peter and he said, Simon, Simon, he said, Satan has demanded permission that he could sift you like wheat. And that's a heavy thought. That's a heavy thought to think that that there's this, this reality that Satan would love nothing more than to destroy the testimony of every believer in this room. That he would love nothing more than the trials of this life to, uh, to destroy the, the testimony and the way that we respond. And, and he said, Simon, Simon, he said, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But Jesus said something after that. He said, but I've prayed for you that your faith may stand. And so in the midst of trials and in the midst of difficult situations, we see these two motives, one for evil and for destruction that Satan might have, and another where God is working to conform us to the image of his son and, and, to, and to work in our lives. And, and in the midst of all these things, we say that not only is there nothing that our God can't do, but that there is nobody like him and that he is immutably, unchangeably good in all those things. And that even in the hard times and even in difficult times and even in things that we face and we may not understand, that we trust that when we can't see uh, the Father's hands in certain situations or when we don't understand those things, we can trust his heart and we can know that he is good in the midst of those things. We see it, you know, we walk through the life of Joseph and we saw in Genesis 50 this incredible picture where he says, you know, those things that you meant for evil, he said, God meant those things for good. We see the picture of God working in the midst of difficult situations. Romans 8, 28, he said, and we know that all things work together for good for those that love him and those are called according to his purpose. He didn't say that every situation was good, but we have a God that is in the midst of those things and he is working and he is sovereign over all things. And in this passage, we see that, hey, there, the glory is coming and many times it is past the suffering, right? We see the death of Christ, but we see the victory to come. See, Christ, in this passage, we see his suffering as a pathway to glory, as a pathway to good. And, and, and we see the truth that those who suffer for Christ will be glorified just as he was. Look at verse 18. This verse, love, love, love this verse. And there's some verses in here that are very clear. And then there are some verses that are a little confusing. We're going to start with a very clear here in verse 18. And he says this, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He says Christ died for sins, that he died for our sins, that he took the guilt and the punishment. He took the guilt of man. He bore the judgment and the punishment uh, for 
my sin. And, and the scripture says in this, the just for the unjust. Now, me and my semester in college have a love-hate relationship right now as I'm walking through Greek. But there are some beautiful things about it as you look into the depth of the Word of God. And he says the just. And I want you to know that that noun that's used for just, it is a singular noun. And it can be translated and it could say that the just one, right? The only one, the just one died for the unjust many. That Christ took upon himself all of my sin and all of my shame. And that the just one, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. We're going to see God's plan uh, in the midst of this. But that he died in my place. This vicarious, substitutionary, atoning death. Jesus died for my sins, right? And, and then he says, so that. So we see Jesus die for sins. And then he says, so that he might bring us to God. I love, love this uh, picture. And we see ourselves separated from God because of our sin, right? Scripture says the wages of sin is death. We see this picture of being separated uh, from God because of our sin. We know that we are created for relationship with God. We see the fall and we see our sin separate us from that relationship. And we miss the joy of that relationship, but Christ died for our sin. Can I remind you that it's not something we did. We're separated from God and we need to be close to God and there is absolutely nothing that you or I could do to into the presence of God, to earn our way uh, into being able to be made right with God, to earn our way into having access to God. There's nothing that we can do. We don't earn forgiveness. It is given to us by grace. Scripture says that it is by grace through faith that we are saved, that it's not of ourselves, that it is the gift of God. And so we have this picture. Sin has separated us from God. Christ died for our sin, nothing that we did. And the, what he did that for, it said so that. Anytime you see so that, man, you want to lean in there because he's going to tell us why. And he said so that he might bring us to God. Now, it even gets better. This word, the word that is used for that he might bring us made me just so excited. Because it says this word, prosago. It is this word that, that gives us this picture of bringing someone into the presence of another. Now the noun form of that verb when it's used in uh, classic Greek and I love this thought, there, there was this picture of these ancient courts and these certain officials would control access to the king. So these certain officials, the noun form of this uh, verb, that they would control uh, the access to the king. So they would examine someone, they would look at them, and they would say, does this person have the right? Does this person uh, meet the criteria? Is this person worthy to have access to the king? Right? There, there's this picture of that. And, and no one comes in unworthy. No one comes in that is uh, uh, unable uh, to have their qualifications met, that they might come into the presence of the king. Now we serve a holy God, right? If you look, he said, set apart Christ the Lord as holy, right? We serve a God who is set apart, who can't be in the presence of sin. And there is no way, there is nothing that we can do that would allow us to have access to him. But I want you to know that, that our fellowship, while it was lost, right, it was gone, Jesus died on the cross. He became sin who knew no sin. That's what uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And through the work of the cross, through the finished work of the cross, we become the righteousness of God and we become worthy. Not in our own good and not in our own strength and not in anything we've done, but through the finished work of the cross, credited uh, the, the, through Christ's righteousness, credited to our account, we are able to have access to the very throne room of God that He might bring us to God. Now, His death 
was sufficient because he was the just one. There was only one that was just. There was only one that was righteous. There was only one that was sinless. And he died for the sinful. He died for you and I so that we might have access. Now notice it says in this passage that Christ died for sins once for all. Now this thought of... uh, Dying for sin is this Old Testament thought. It's this Old Testament uh, term that, that we would see. And he died for sins once for all. Uh, turn back uh, just to your left uh, to the book of Hebrews. Uh, just a few pages back. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Some of these verses may be on the screen, some not. But uh, the beginning part of chapter 10 says, For the law, since it, only, since it is, has only a shadow... Of good things to come. And so there was this shadow. There was this pointing. And so as we see in the Old Testament sacrificial system. As we see uh, this atonement for sin. As we see th- this picture. It's always pointing uh, to Christ. And it says it has only a shadow of the good things to come. And not the very form of things. Can never by the same sacrifices. Which they offer continually year after year. Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered. Because the worshipers once having once cleanse would no longer have had consciousness of sins but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin let's skip on down to verse number 10 he says by this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now watch these next verses. We're going to see some very similar verses as we end First uh, Peter chapter number 3. But he says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Right? It's pointing to the Messiah. It's pointing to Jesus. It was this picture though that God wanted us to understand that we cannot atone for our sins. That there's nothing that we could do and, and that our sin required atonement. That our sin required uh, this, this atoning sacrifice But verse 12, it says, But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Now now notice in Hebrews 10, it said the the priest stands daily. That that he stands and there's this continual work that never uh, is complete. That it's never enough. But it said that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. And I want you to know he sat down because the work was done. It is paid in full. It was a sacrifice once for all. Jesus cried out from the cross, my favorite uh, word in Greek, right? To tell us die, right? Y'all remember that, some of you. But to tell us die, right? It is paid in full. It is complete. The work is done. And his substitutionary death, his vicarious death, it allows us to be made right with God. And he did that so that he could bring us to God, so that he could allow us access to God. And what a privilege it is. You know, Clark said that we don't want to, I don't remember the exact words he used, but he talked about us being able to approach the very throne of God. And we don't come haphazardly to that. We know what it costs that we might have access. All right, so it gets a little confusing. Y'all hang with me. We're going to go quick. Um, This is one of those passages when you read it, unless you're a lot smarter than me, you just go, okay. Um, So he says this. He says, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits. Now in prison. (laughs) Uh, What? Um, some of y'all can say that with me. It says, 
in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Now let's keep going. Let's get a little more confusing. It says corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And we know that it's not baptism that saves us, right? We uh, know that, he says, but now corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then it gets back where we can understand some stuff again. And he says, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So I want to I frame this in a bigger picture because I think we've got to, to, there's people that have taken just a verse of this and they've said, okay, we'll start a whole denomination on the fact that baptism now saves you. Or we'll take some of these verses and, and, and can line in that. But I want to keep all these in context. So we're in the midst of suffering. We're in the midst of these uh, pictures. All right, here we go. Testing, one, two. Can you hear me now? I preached right out of my mic. Um, All right, so I want to have this thing framed in the midst of this thought of suffering. And so Christ, who is the just one, I want to put three statements that I want you to keep in mind when we try to navigate the rest of this passage. So first we see Christ, the just one, okay, singular noun, the just one, died for the unjust many. And he did that so that uh, we could bring those who would believe to God. We see that in verse 18. Verse verse, uh, 18 and 19, we see by the power of the Spirit, he was raised from the dead, and he proclaimed victory over demonic spirits. Now, we're going to talk a little bit uh, about that. And number three, he is now at the right hand of the Father as the resurrected and ascended Lord, and he is supreme over all. Now, I shared with this is, in my opinion, one of the tougher passages in the New Testament. I was uh, blessed to be able to uh, do a funeral for a lady in our church that had written all kind of just these Christian textbooks. Her name was Jan Gillette, just an incredible incredible lady and she had her bible there and so I thought well I'll see what she wrote in there because she wrote like everywhere so here's a picture of her bible it was just it's encouraging to see and every page from the front to the back was filled with those kind of things and when I got to those two verses she just left a blank I'm like oh thanks I thought maybe I'd like get some answers right there And so I I was like, okay, Martin Luther said this, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who explained it. I'm thinking I'm probably in trouble because that was a smart dude, right? One commentator kind of brought out some of the pieces of it, and he says there's some things we've got to know. Where did Christ go? When did he go? To whom did he speak to? And what did he say? Now, there's a lot of different answers that you'll find for these questions. I read one uh, person that said there could be as many as like 180 uh, things about it. This morning, I I looked at this one commentary. I had a Tyndale commentary, and I thought, well, this might be good. Wayne Grudem was the guy that had written it. I thought, he's a sharp guy. I'll figure out what he says about it. And so I flipped through it, and then there's not that much like in that part, but there's a little note that there's an appendix. So I flipped to the appendix, and for two verses, there's 40 pages. 40 pages. I said, oh my goodness, I probably won't read that this morning. 
All right, so let's jump in here. Let's think about some options, and then let's pull back in to the big picture. 19 and 20, he said, in which he also went made, and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were, so, so he says about these spirits in prison, he said, who were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. So some people uh, take this passage and they believe uh, that there's a picture here of Jesus descending uh, into hell, that he went into hell. We see some, some wording in the Apostles' Creed that uh, has this kind of thought uh, that people have gleaned uh, maybe from some of that. There's this picture that he might have given a second chance to those who didn't believe and did not get to hear the gospel. But uh, the, the rest of Scripture really is just completely against that. We don't read uh, anywhere in Scripture that it says Jesus went to hell and that he suffered or that he did any. There's all kind of things around that. Uh, we can read in Acts 2, this thought of, of Hades. But what we see in this, this passage, um, the word that's used for proclamation is not a word that's used for sharing of the gospel. So there's this picture of this proclamation of victory, uh, I believe, that was shared there. And so I don't line up with the first uh, kind of piece of that that some folks uh, kind of cling to. Augustine and probably some folks like John Piper and maybe even Grudem, if I could have gotten through 40 pages to figure that out this morning. But, but possibly there's some people there that line up uh, and teach that Jesus' spirit was with Noah. There's this kind of picture of this preexistent Christ in the person of Noah and that these spirits were those in Noah's time that needed to hear the word. And so, like I said, there's some brilliant people like a John Piper that might line up there. But there's something I can't quite get to in that because it says Jesus went, and in the Greek, there's a participle for went, and it says he went somewhere, and so I can't figure that out. I can't get rid of that um, in my mind, and so at the at the same token, I share with you from the beginning, I'm not sure that we'll land in a spot that we know much more than when we started, but option three is this picture of, of Jesus yielding his spirit to the Father that sometime between his death and resurrection that he went to Hades, which I believe is the most, uh, at least to me, the, the thing that lines up uh, the most, and that he went to Hades, he delivered a message to the spirit beings, these fallen angels. Now, there's, there's all kind of different perspectives of that. You can read in Jude 6 some pieces about that, but that he went and he declared a message of victory to these spirits that were disobedient in Noah's time. Now, some of that makes my mind go, and I, and I, and I don't know, maybe if you've got that figured out, I would love to hear, right? Because like I read, and I'm like, man, the more I read, the more confused I get. And, and so when I read these kind of things, what I do know uh, is what I want to focus on, right? And so there's this, this picture of this declaration of victory. If you want to look in Ephesians 4.8, there's this, this other picture of, of some of that that you can kind of lean into. But for the sake of time, we're going to keep trucking on a, a little bit more of what I believe the intent of the context of this passage is. There's some things that are unknown about it in my mind. And so I don't know if Jesus like made proclamation, like he went in there and stuck his tongue out and like, y'all are done. <laughs> like, y'all are, like, I can, nah, 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 nah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But here, here's what we see. And then he says, corresponding to that, verse 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, immediately following this, this picture of him saying, now baptism saves you, he says it can't remove the filth of the flesh. And it's this clear picture that salvation doesn't come by baptism. But there's something about this that says it's this appeal. Uh, it says this is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, 
I think about baptism in these moments, and I think about when we have baptism in uh, church and we have it in, in this nation. A lot of times there's not really any persecution that we face from that, right? But I think about these believers that uh, maybe are in other countries where persecution is rampant, or maybe the ones that Peter had written to originally. Some places there, there was this intense persecution that might come from this public declaration of faith in Christ. And, and there's this picture in my mind of this clear conscience that they have as obedient followers of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of things that they might face. And there's this overarching theme in this passage that says, even though you may suffer, you be obedient in Christ. But here's what I do know, that Christ's victory reminds us that the suffering that we face in this life is temporary. The suffering that we walk through, uh, Paul said it this way, this momentary light affliction. He said those things that you are walking through in this life. He said this momentary light affliction is working a far exceeding weight of glory in the eternal. And he said in the midst of a life that's filled with suffering, in the midst of hard times, in the midst of difficult times, we know that Jesus is victorious and that he is working and that this suffering is temporary. The end is sure. Jesus is victorious over all suffering and over all evil. And those who belong to Christ, even though they will face suffering, even though they walk through those tough times, ultimately they will share in Christ's resurrection. And, and he says, listen, we're going to get through the difficulties and the hard times and the waters of this life, just as those, uh, that, those eight that were uh, delivered through the midst of judgment and through the wrath of God that was poured out in that time. And he says that the reason that we do that is because Christ is victorious. You remember the three things, right? Christ, the one, the just one, suffered for the unjust many. By the power of the Spirit, He was raised from the dead and He proclaimed victory over everything, over demonic spirits, over everything. And He now is at the right hand of the Father. He has resurrected and has ascended. And He is the undefeated, undisputed, heavyweight champion of the world, right? That there is nothing that our God can't do. There's nothing. Uh, th there's no one like our God. Our God uh, is amazing, and He is conquered, and He is victorious over death, hell, and the grave. He is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had all been subjected to Him. And the message for the readers that would have received this letter then, and the message for us today is that Jesus is still on the throne. He is in charge, and He is sovereign over all things. Even when we're going through difficult times, even when we suffer, even when things don't look good. The work is done. We don't fight for victory, but we fight from victory. And Jesus is victorious over all demonic forces, over everything uh, that there is. And we are not forsaken. We are not abandoned. Romans 8 says, in fact, that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor wickedness, nor rulers. That there is nothing, right, that can separate us from the love of God. That we are more than conquerors. And when it comes down, when the rubber meets the road, teenagers maybe in this room, adults in this room, when we walk in the midst of this life, again, we are blessed to not suffer in, in ways that many 
people do. But when we say, you know what, I'm going to stand for Jesus, you're going to stand out from this world. And we are no longer in a country where it is popular to say, thus saith the Word of God, and I'm going to stand on His book. That, that's not the popular thing. And as we say, you know what, I'm not going to be conformed to the image of this world and to all the things that are being uh, pressed in. I'm not going to conform to those things. Scripture says, be not conformed uh, to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And as we allow the Word of God to shape our lives and, and to teach and to grow us into who God wants us to be, we're not going to conform to the sinful habits of our peers. There's going to be times that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're not going to be able to hang out with certain people. We're not going to be able to go to certain places because we're going to be different. And you are going to face persecution for those things. If you are following Jesus, Paul told Timothy, he said, all those uh, who are seeking to live a godly life in Christ will suffer, will face persecution. And either people don't know who we are, right? Or, or, or it's just God's grace that up to this point we have not experienced that. But we will face those things. But in those things, we come in, in a way that we say, you know what, I am resolved. I love where it said in, in Daniel, where it said that he had purposed in his heart, right? There was a place that he had got to long before he was faced with temptation. Scripture says that he had purposed in his heart that he would not defile uh, himself with the king's eye, with all those things that were going on. And there was a time beforehand that he said, you know what, I'm going to stand for Jesus because if the world comes against me and, and we're going to face those kind of things, but we say, you know what, I will remain faithful to Christ and I'm going to live faithfully and obedient. There will be times that some of you endure lonely nights and not a lot of friends and all kind of things uh, because you are not conforming to the things of this world. But you say, you know what, I'm willing to stand in the midst of that and I will face those things because there's going to be a day where I'm vindicated. There's going to be a day when I will stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And my hope is not to please everyone in this life, but my hope is that I would live my life in a way that would please the one, the one who gave it all, the one just that died for the unjust. And it is that reality that motivates everything we do. The recognition of who we are apart from Christ, separated from Him, unable to be in His presence, needing access to, to Him, and doomed in our own. But Jesus, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God, died in our place. He died for us, and He gives us access. And in the midst of that, we will live our life for an audience of one, and we will know that no matter what we face in life, this life, that there is victory in Christ. And there's coming a day where the momentary difficult things that we face in this world will be nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. And we see through the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ that there is glory through suffering, that there is glory through the difficult things in this world. And so therefore, we will not lose heart and we will press on for the glory of His name. And we will not do it alone. I want to remind every young person in here, sometimes if you walk in to a school, if you walk in uh, to, to any place in this world, and some of us as, as adults that are uh, maybe in, in jobs where there's pressure for all kind of things, there are days that when you stand for Jesus, you will seem to be the minority. But I want you to know that with Christ, He promises that He will never leave us nor forsake us. And He promises that we will never be the minority. With Jesus, you are never the minority. And we need to stand with a backbone like a saw log, right? That we, might, that we might live for the glory of His name. That we might not bow down to the things of this world. But that we would recognize that we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And all authority has been given to Him. And we've been purchased 
bought with a price. And it's our hope that we would glorify God in our bodies. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? We're going to worship the Lord together as we close today. I want to encourage you, if you're online, if you're in this room, if you have never just trusted Christ and surrendered your life to Him, that Scripture says that Jesus died for our sins so that He might bring us to God, the just for the unjust. And maybe you're here this morning and you recognize that there is nothing that you could do to earn your way into His presence. There's nothing that you could do uh, that would would earn your salvation, that you can't be good enough. I hear people say, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. I've done this or that. The reality is that in comparison to a holy God and to the righteous standards of God, we are sinners. That we, Scripture says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there is none righteous, not even one. But there is good news that our God, who was rich in mercy, even though we deserve death, even though we deserve punishment, that God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And He says that we might be brought to God. And our response is simply just to believe, to trust Him by faith in the finished work of the cross, Jesus rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven and He sat down at the right hand of the Father. There is no more work to be done. The work is complete. Scripture says that it's by grace through faith that we are saved. And He says that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And there's nothing that we could do to earn it. But Jesus has paid that price that we might be brought into the presence of God. And our response is just to believe by faith. And maybe you're here this morning and today. You say, you know what? I believe. I want to trust Jesus with my life. I surrender my life. I want to live for Him. Not for the promises that there will be no suffering. Not for the promises that I will never walk through dark times. Not with any of those promises, but with the promise that He'll be with me. And that in this world, even though we face trouble, we can have good courage. We can take courage because we have an overcoming Savior. We have a Savior that has overcome this world. And so this morning, if you've never trusted Jesus, I want to invite you just to believe in Him, to surrender your life, to trust Him. Scripture says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, that we could be saved. That whoever would call upon the name of the Lord could be saved. Maybe God's speaking to you in that way this morning. Maybe you're walking just in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hard times. Maybe you've gotten weary and somehow the message is only half there, right? It just seems dark all around. But I want to remind you that through the the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, we are reminded that there is victory. We have hope. In fact, as Scripture says, as the song they sung earlier, that He's our living hope. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that we've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. May we cling to that hope and may it cause us to give it ample reason to be ready to share the reason for the hope that's in us. Maybe we came in this morning without hope, but I want to remind you that hope has a name and His name Jesus. Father, we pray, God, that you would do what only you can do in this place, God, that you might remind us, God, of the victory that was won on the cross of Calvary. Father, that you might, God, draw those that, God, are far from you, Lord, near. 
Lord, that you might cause the dead to live, Father. Lord, that you might speak. God, in the power of your Spirit, into the situations of every person in this room. And God, may we leave with hope, expectant hope. Father, we love you. We praise you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand and worship?